and it's a two-part series since it is 440 slides. Again, lots of pictures, but that's good. Um, and so we'll do hopefully half of them today and then half of them in two weeks. I think in two weeks. Maybe it's next week. Okay, so next, next week. Good. So I'm not going to go over too much about how to do the exams since our ophthalmology colleagues and, and Dr. Hoon uh, worked on some of that. But we're going to talk about change in vision, the eye color stuff we're not going to do much, and lots of stuff about pain. So I think the first thing that we didn't look at um, most recently is the anatomy. So let's just do a quick refresh of our memories on the anatomy. Um, the lacrimal apparatus has a superior and an inferior puncta, right? And they drain in here, and this is the nose. And so this, this uh, lacrimal apparatus can get infected or obstructed, and so that leads to tearing. Um, the this is, of course, the medial canthus, lateral canthus. The limbus we talked a little bit about, that's defined as the border of the cornea as it joins the sclera, so the cornea and the white part of the eye. Um, let's see. There's an inferior canaliculus and a superior canaliculus. So anybody who gets a laceration through that part of the um, periorbital area, we should not be suturing ourselves. That needs to be done with, with 10-0 suture with a... With a, um, with a microscope and stuff and ophthalmology, our oculoplastics colleagues will do that. Um, patients, uh, let's see, nasal lacrimal duct. Okay, so that's the, that part of the anatomy. Um, from a cross-section, we were talking earlier about narrow angle, narrow angle glaucoma. So in the anterior chamber, the iris and the cornea should form an open angle when this is angled forward, the angle is narrow, and so when the pupil, uh, pupil dilates, it obstructs the canals of Schlem and, and obstructs the drainage of the aqueous humor from the anterior chamber. That's what causes acute angle closure, closure glaucoma. Um, we talked earlier about the ciliary body. There's a muscle here that makes the lens change shape, and when that goes into spasm, that hurts a lot. I've had that. We'll talk about that in, in uh, concert with corneal abrasions in a little bit. Um, there are two conjunctivi. The bulbar conjunctiva goes over the globe, and the um, uh, tarsal conjunctiva goes under the lid. All right, so most of the time when we're talking about conjunctivitis, we're at least talking about bulbar conjunctivitis, bulb over the globe itself. That's how I remember the difference, so bulbar conjunctivitis. Remember that the, that the conjunctiva has blood vessels, but the sclera does not. So there's no such thing as scleral injection. That's a, that's a mistake that brands you as an amateur. There's conjunctival injection, and the conjunctiva, bulbar conjunctiva, overlies the white sclera, but it's actually the conjunctiva that's injected by having dilated blood vessels, not the sclera itself. The sclera is avascular. So don't say scleral injection. It's got to be conjunctival injection. All right, and we talked about cilia body, optic nerve, and disc we talked about earlier. Um, and vitreous and aqueous. This is a uh, netogram with lots of different things um, labeled. Uh, again, the iris, when it uh, contracts and therefore the pupil dilates, it obstructs the canals of Schlem. Where's the canals of Schlem on here? Uh, it's on here someplace because I saw it before. To the like, like 10 to 11 o'clock. Keep going to the left. Down. There you go. There it is. Up. There we go. Oh, yeah, so the canals are schlem, so down in here. All right, so that's what gets obstructed in a, in, in a closed or narrow angle glaucoma. Um, the ciliary muscle is, here's muscle fibers, and that, again, that, that uh, uh, controls the de deformation of the lens. All right? And then the extraocular muscles, a quick review. Um, this is the patient's uh, right eye. The lateral rectus is here. The inferior rectus is here, the superior rectus, and the superior oblique comes around that pulley that I remember vaguely from anatomy and uh, uh, turns the eye, and then there's the inferior oblique down here. And then there's the levator palpebrae superioris, which lifts up the eyelid. Okay? All right, and another view of the lateral right orbit um, with the muscles labeled. Okay, so we're going to talk about styes and, and chalazians, um, conjunctivitis, iritis, scleritis, episcleritis. The 
distinction between these three are not terribly important for us. Um, we need to just discriminate between plain old conjunctivitis, which may feel irritation but doesn't hurt, and these which hurt. All right, they're going to cause eye pain. Talk about vision loss, painful versus painless, uh, glaucoma, optic neuritis. Um, eventually, we'll get to central retinal artery and vein occlusion. Couple pictures on that: Bell's palsy, Horner syndrome, some trauma stuff, and some chemical burns. All right, so um, our ophthalmology uh, colleague went over this. But these are the things that we should look at. Visual acuity is the vital sign of the eye. You should never be calling an ophthalmologist without a visual acuity. We'll talk about how to get the patient's best visual acuity, and I'll show you the pinhole stuff in a minute. Uh, lids, lashes, nexa. Well, you can read the list as well as I can. Start in the front and go back. And then ultimately, if you get to fundoscopy, that's fine. But given the fact that we don't usually dilate the eye, then getting a good look at the fundus is pretty darn difficult. And so it's not frankly, part of my exam uh, most of the time. Um, I'd rather use an ultrasound machine. All right? Um, okay, yeah, so, so uh, uh, <coughs> yes, that's true. So that's the only thing where there's, the nurses are, are, they know to, if there's a chemical exposure to the eye, they don't get the visual acuity up front, they bring them right back and start the irrigation. All right? Good point. All right, so uh, Dr. Snellen apparently developed a Snellen chart. Um, normally we do 20 feet from the chart um, and the pinhole thing. So the pin, the near, near card is also acceptable, 14 inches. Do people have these on their phones now? Does it say how far to hold the... Uh, 14 inches. Still 14 inches? Are they so they're the same size? Or I guess they... I guess they... Uh, adjust the size? Four feet, okay. Um, and then if somebody's old and is presbyopic, meaning over the age of 40 you start losing your near vision, um, you should have them look through their bifocal, which is the bottom part of the eye, to get their uh, refractive correction the best it can be. So the pinhole thing, um, so if the patient breaks their glasses or they don't have them or they don't even need, don't, they don't even know that they need glasses, they will have a refractive error. And our job is to get their best visual acuity. To do that, we have to correct for their refractive error. We can't go make them a pair of glasses, but we can correct for it by using the pinhole. And what the pinhole does is it, it restricts the amount of light coming through the lens to a very narrow beam. And so whatever problem there is with the lens that would have to focus that, that image on the retina is removed because it's only a single direction of light. It doesn't have to focus anything on the retina. So you should correct to about 20-30 with a pinhole even if you have crummy, uh, crummy eyes and, and, a, and a crummy accommodate. Uh, you're not allowed, you're not, um, if you have bad vision, let's put it that way. So one of my eyes, I think my left one is 2400, I correct to about 20-30 through a pinhole. So what our problem is that our nurses not knowing all of this will often tell us that the patient's vision is 2200. And three things are wrong with that. Number one, they didn't do the pinhole and they don't know how to do it, so we have to repeat it. Number two, they don't, well, four things are wrong with that. Number two is they don't make, they don't give the patient a, uh, a tissue to dry their eyes, and so they get blurriness just by virtue of them tearing. The third thing is that the patient has usually an injury or pain and they, are, they keep blinking and they can't keep their eye open long enough to look. So we can get a much better visual acuity after we put the proparacane in, all right? And um, the other thing is that the nurses don't make the patient guess. So you show them the eye chart and you say, read line, read this line, line four. Like, I can't. Well, yes, you can. Guess. What do you think it is? And they're right very much of the time, but they're afraid to give uh, a wrong answer. So you have to really make, really push them to say, what, what do you think it is? What do you think it is? And they'll end up reading four or five out of the five or six letters on that line because you make them guess. So guessing, anesthesia, a tissue, and a pinhole. In order to do all those four things to get the best visual acuity, the difference is you get somebody with 2200 and some eye pain, you're going to be calling the ophthalmologist. Same patient you can get correct at 2030, you don't have to call the ophthalmologist. As long as the vision's normal and you can prove it is, it can really change the course of the patient's care and who you have to consult. So those things. So when you write in your chart, you write visual acuity with pinhole or visual acuity without pinhole. Yeah. 
All right? And obviously, you test one eye at a time. This doesn't show it here, but this is the thing that has the pinholes in it. So he's not, this isn't the pinhole. This thing comes down, and he looks through those pinholes that provide only one beam of light to his retina. All right? So we have those at triage, and there's one in room 30, uh, 33 as well. But if you don't have that, you can just take an index card, poke a hole in it with a paper clip, and have them look through the hole, and that'll do the same thing. Okay? So why does that have so many pinholes, and the paper clip looks the same? I don't know. You're only, really only looking through the one pinhole. I mean, this could have one pinhole. I'm not sure why it's got a million. All right, so the pinhole allows the passage of light perpendicular to the lens. doesn't have to be bent, so it corrects for refractive problems. So there's all of this stuff that, uh, that sometimes you see on the chart. And the important thing is, where'd it go? Okay, supposed to be, there we go, good. So we're not supposed to use those abbreviations anymore because they're confusing and in the interest of communicating well with our ophthalmologists and emergency docs and nurses and techs and patients, we should call it right eye and left eye and both eyes and one eye. Um, when you record the visual acuity, you should put the line where they did the best minus the number of letters they missed or the number of letters that they got on the next line. So 2040 plus 2, 2060 minus 1 means they missed one of the letters on that line. All right? So it can go either way. All right, and then we talked about this. If they can't read the characters on the chart, what chart, on the wall, what wall, then they can count fingers, um, and then movement, and then light perception. And we shouldn't use blind, but no light perception. NLP is the appropriate uh, designation. All right, so blepharitis, um, Stye versus uh, Chalazian. I've mispronounced it for a long time, so I'm trying to remember Chalazian. Um, and look at some pictures of septal and preceptal cellulitis. So blepharitis is irritation of the lid margin. There are meboemian glands there. They're oil glands, and they get obstructed and inflamed. And so that's one picture of blepharitis. Here's another one. You can see a little bit of crusting not crusting like they're stuck together on the eyelashes, but it's right at the base of the, of the eyelashes that's the blepharitis. Um, and here's a little bit of more crusting here. Again, it's not conjunctivitis where you get matting and sticking together of the lashes themselves, but it's right at the base. And this is a bad case of blepharitis. It can also be caused by bugs. I think we'll get there in a minute. This is uh, angular blepharitis. What other thing would you worry if this didn't go away after you treated it? Zoster, okay, what else? Basal cell carcinoma? Yeah, so we'll show up a couple of pictures of cancers in a, in a little bit, but, but anything that doesn't go away and looks inside of a regular like that certainly could be a basal cell or even a squamous cell. All right, so blepharitis is no big deal. Um, you can just clean it with uh, baby shampoo or, or uh, mild soap. Um, you could use an antibiotic cream if you wanted to, but it's not really an infection. Hot soaps? Hmm? Hot soaps? Uh, warm is fine. Basically, you don't have to do it. Just clean it up. I mean, these people's, these people's hygiene is not so good, so just, just wash it uh, gently. So there are lice and uh, crabs that go there, pediculosis, pediculus humanus corporis, body lice and capitis, and uh, pubic lice also there. There are blood suckers. Um, if you see somebody like that, we should get the organisms out, and then we can use either lindane or permethrin. I guess they, this is a 2005 lecture, uh, lecture. I think we use the permethrin now. And if they have uh, nits, then you can smother them with petroleum. All right, ptosis. This is a patient with ptosis, left eye. All right, versus drooping lids. This is not a basset hound, but it's a, it's a person. So there's these two things which I wasn't much aware of, ectropion and entropion. The ectropion basically exposes your palpebral conjunctiva to the world, and so it gets irritated. And so this is the ectropion where the lower eyelid is turned out. The entropion is when the uh, lower eyelid is turned inward. Yes? Okay. Oops. Well, I was going to say that the ectropion, you guys can see, can cause like dry eyes, efficient, because I... Mm -hmm. 
Good point. All right, so old folks get the entropian. Um, there's a congenital form, and there's other stuff that causes it. But basically, we would recognize it and, and uh, call the ophthalmologist. Um, entropian, there can be scarring that shortens the, uh, the eyelid uh, tissue and can cause it to uh, turn inward. Um, Stevens-Johnson, herpes zoster, trauma, and chemical injuries. So this is an entropian. Um, that's uh, turned inward. Kind of hard to see on this one. Yeah, this more looks more like an ectropian, doesn't it? Where it's turned outward, but we won't worry about that. All right. Um, all right. So the ectropian turns outward, and sagging red, dry eyes. All right. No, 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 no. This is this is a chronic problem. It's not an emergency. You can just give them tears and let them go to the ophthalmologist at their leisure. I I, I can't say I've ever seen anybody come in with with this. It's in the lecture because it's interesting and I didn't know about it. Okay. Uh, so I don't know. This is there was a congenital form, so this must be the congenital form. All right, dacryocystitis. This is an infection of the uh, lacrimal drainage apparatus. Uh, the tear sac between the inner canthus of the eye and the nose, usually from blockage of the tear duct, um, could be from an injury, eye infection, or trauma. It's generally only on one side. You would have to have simultaneous obstruction, so it's one-sided. Um, tenderness, redness, swelling, discharge, and it uh, looks like that. All right, so it's basically a, an abscess within the drainage apparatus. Here's one that's not quite as bad, and I think the next one is even worse. So this is, so this is not stuff that we would mess with. We'd call the ophthalmologist if it were this bad, um, give antibiotics, and uh, they would need to drain this abscess somehow. Obviously, we'd never drain it from the outside. This is a, um, a, a passageway of tears that would have to be drained and, and can cannulated from the inside, either through the nose or through the uh, lacrimal puncta on the eyelash. We wouldn't mess with this. All right, so there's the sty um, called a hordeolum, um, and that's an acute staph infection of the oil gland, the meboemian gland, and it's right at the lash line. It's a little pimple. Um, you don't have to do much about this, a warm compress, and at some point in the next couple of days, it'll burst open and drain pus and then heal up all by itself. Um, they say to give erythromycin ophthalmic ointment, okay. Um, if you didn't, it would still get better by itself, assuming the patient's uh, a normal host. Hello. There we go. So here's one that's just developing. Um, so it'll be painful at this point, but it's not yet coming to, an coming to a head. So you can tell the patient to put a warm compress on it, give them antibiotic drops or ointment, and two or three days it'll come to a head and pop just like a regular pimple will. Mm, poor kid. Just a big one. That's also going to go away by itself. It's got one on the... Oh, up there too? Yeah. Okay. All right, and then this is the more chronic one. So this is the same gland, but it gets more inflamed, chronically inflamed. It can get a, a granuloma. Um, and you get a tender lump in the lid, and these stay for several weeks, and they're more circumscribed. So the hordeolum or the sty is two or three or four days. This can be for weeks. We don't do much with these. We refer them to the ophthalmologist. They need to be removed by the ophthalmologist. Um, we can put more warm compresses on them. We give an antibiotics. Everything in the eye we give antibiotics to, whether it's infected or not. So we can do that. And four to six weeks um, is the time frame because these need to, they might resolve, but if they don't, then they have to be uh, removed by the ophthalmologist, and that's complicated. So here's another Chalazian. All right. Bell's palsy, um, so motor to facial muscles and the stapedius, so sometimes the hearing is affected, um, and the taste of the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. So the patients, actually, I've actually had them volunteer to me that their food tastes funny, and when I pursue it, they go, I don't really taste it on one side, or it tastes kind of metallic on one side. They have changes there. They can also get pain uh, behind the ear is another common place. 
um, but they shouldn't have any involvement of the extraocular muscles or the trigeminal nerve. So it's basically um, the uh, facial muscles, a, a peripheral seventh nerve palsy with some extension to the ninth nerve and the seventh nerve depending on where the um, uh, inflammation is. So it happens abruptly over, over a few hours. It doesn't progress over several days. If it does, it's going to be something else. So Bell's palsy is, I woke up and it was like this, or it got this way today. And once it gets to that level of paralysis, it stays there. It doesn't f get worse further. All right, so it's an abrupt within a few hours or just wake up with it type of thing. Um, the smile is asymmetrical, like we've talked about. Um, the hyperacusis, you can have increased hearing, and then the changes in taste with the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. So what do they mean by some patients with numbness? <sighs> I, I, you know, I read about this. So, so it, it has been described that some patients have numbness of the face, but I looked up why that was, and I couldn't figure out what it was about the trigeminal nerve that would be involved. I think there's lots of branches that go through that canal, and some of them can get affected by the inflammation. But they actually call the food stroke. Turned out they just include as palsy. Yeah. So what what they say for that is that if you ask the patient to look down, the involved eye on the Bell's palsy side rolls upward. That's got an eponym to it, but I'm yeah. blanking on. Bell's phenomenon. So that's supposed to be, according to Dr. Hermanowitz, the neurologist, pathognomonic for a Bell's palsy. Yeah, yeah I'm like, you hold their eyelids and you try to close their eyes, and it's like a defensive mechanism. The eye goes up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it goes okay. So Bell's phenomenon. So this is. All right. So he can smile on the left, but he can't on the right. All right, and then Ramsey-Hunt syndrome is the same phenomenon, only it's an external manifestation of the herpes zoster reactivation. So you get the, um, basically the vesicles on either the external auditory canal, the pinna, or even on the tympanic membrane. So you just call it Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. It doesn't do anything, you don't do anything different by virtue of it having the, um, um, lesions and the rash on the ear, it's still treated the same way as a regular Bell's palsy. You just That's why they started testing people for with Bell's palsy for herpes reactivations, because the Ramsey-Hunt syndrome was described, and it was obvious that it was a um, reactivation of herpes zoster. So apparently the um, virus hides in the geniculate, geniculate ganglion, and uh, everything is the same as the Bell's palsy, except there's a rash. Um, so. Bell's palsy versus strokes. So the corneal reflex and sensation are intact. So if for some reason you didn't have corneal reflex or corneal sensation, then that wouldn't be a Bell's palsy. Um, cranial nerves 5, 6, and 8 are intact All right, with a Bell's palsy, and so they might not be in a, in a brainstem stroke. Uh, Lyme disease can cause Bell's palsy. So on the East Coast, I'm told that a lot of these people get lumbar punctures for uh, cerebral Lyme disease, but not out here, unless they were camping in the woods in New Hampshire. Guillain-Barre can uh, be a mimic, and I can't imagine a facial infection um, that would confuse us. Uh, most patients with Bell palsy get better. Uh, this says 80%. I read 95% of patients get uh, at least somewhat better, um, and about 5% to have some residual deficit. Usually takes uh, several weeks for it to uh, come back to their normal function. Um, steroids and antivirals, we won't go into that, but generally we administer them both because they both might help. So Horner's syndrome, um, ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis. Yes? Yeah, so, it's, so the Bell's palsy is a peripheral seventh, so you should not be able to move your forehead on the involved side at all. If you have partial movement of the forehead, then it's a central seventh and it's not a Bell's palsy. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So, ptosis, uh, meiosis, and anhydrosis. And this is related to the oculosympathetic pathway from the hypothalamus down to T1 and goes back up the sympathetic chain and the optic nerves. And so, 
when you have this, what do you worry about? So you see somebody with a dilated pupil, and sorry, a meiosis, a small pupil, um, and a droopy lid. I don't know how you really test for anhydrosis, but if you just see the droopy lid and the small pupil, what test would you order? CT. Chest X-ray, CT, or at least a chest X-ray to begin with. So yeah, so it's the Pancos tumor that um, involves the uh, the nerve, um, this pathway that gives you the Horner's syndrome. So um, this is a guy with a droopy lid and a, and a meiosis. It's supposed to be the droopy lid looks like it's on the right. Do they complain of bad vision? No, not that I know of. Blurring, double vision, anything no. like that. And you got a whole lot of ocular symptoms, droopy lid. And I don't, uh, any uh, thoughts, uh, Dr. Hoon? With uh, Horner's syndrome, did, what do they complain of? Do, have, do they have any ocular symptoms? Yeah, so this is this is odd because this is supposed to be the Horner's syndrome, but he doesn't have a small pupil, he has a big pupil. Unless this is the droopy side, they both look, no, this side looks more droopy than that one. <laughs> Could be. He does, that's another part of this talk. All right, well anyway, it's supposed to be a droopy lid and a small pupil. All right, and this is a patient with the Pancos tumor, apical lung cancer that involves this pathway and leads to the Horner syndrome. All right. Gesundheit. All right, so a preceptal and septal cellulitis. So, the one, which ones, which one's worse, preceptal or septal cellulitis? Septal, or it's also called postseptal. So postseptal meaning behind the front of the eye into the orbit. So postseptal is bad. Preceptal is basically the skin in front of the eye, and it's not that bad. So postseptal or yeah, postseptal cellulitis is bad. It's also pretty uncommon. You either have to have hematogenous seeding of your orbit or a direct penetrating injury of your orbit to get a post-septal septal cellulitis. A lot of... Have you heard people use that clinically? Because I always use orbital and perioral. Um, okay, they're... All right, so post-septal is orbital cellulitis. Pre-septal is periorbital cellulitis. I'm just asking you if you... Because I have never, like clinically, All right, good point. Yeah, I think this is more. I I, I would also say periorbital or orbital. Um, like and orbital is worse. Mm. Hmm? It's like tomato, tomato. Well, they're synonymous, but but you're right. The the orbital cellulitis is posterior and, and is worse. And the periorbital cellulitis is around the orbit, and it's not so bad. All right, they're both infections, but one's easier to treat. All right, so... So if you have a orbital cellulitis, then you have pus behind the orbit, and it pushes the orbit out. And when you move the eye around in the pus, it hurts. So you have pain on extraocular motion with orbital cellulitis, post-septal cellulitis, and you don't have pain with extraocular movement with pre-septal or periorbital cellulitis. So that's a huge distinction clinically. Does yeah. it hurt when you move your eyes around? Because sometimes it's hard to tell whether it's yeah, and the periorbital cellulitis, if you can open their eye and clear the discharge, should not have decreased vision. There's nothing about having the skin around your eye infected that should affect your vision, or for that matter, make it hurt when you move your eye. Um, you shouldn't really have a headache. You could have face pain with periorbital cellulitis, but if you have an abscess behind your eye, then you're going to have a headache or at least a unilateral um, sort of you know, deep, boring pain. The intraocular pressure should be normal in periorbital cellulitis if you check it because it doesn't involve the orbit at all, just the skin around the orbit, and the intraocular pressure will be elevated in the orbital cellulitis because there's a pus pocket behind the eye pushing on it and raising the pressure. All right, And lid edema could be with either one. So the other, th the other thing about orbital versus periorbital cellulitis, thanks for reminding me Dr. Koenig, is that the Orbital cellulitis, the patient's sick, and the periorbital cellulitis, they, they look okay. You know, they're sitting there going, yeah, my eye's red and swollen, hurts a little bit, but they, they don't have a big fever, they're not, they're not sick. I mean, you're going to see probably 
you know, 20 periorbital cellulitis for every orbital cellulitis. The orbital is really uncommon. One other thing that I find is helpful, like in this picture, for example, you guys all know like orbital septum is attached around the bone here and then it goes down to here. So like this one, you would think that it's more like an orbital because the infection is actually can trap behind and go beyond the, the line where the orbital septum is attached. So yeah. it's very orbital, then it should just, it should just there. Yeah, and the most important thing is whether it hurts to move the eye. I mean, this, this guy actually doesn't look all that bad from the way he looks, and he's just sitting there. I think this is more periorbital, but it's labeled orbital cellulitis, and his eye would hurt if you moved it. Uh, not specifically. Which is more likely in kids, it's hematogenous spread from another source versus in adults. Yeah. Well, the periorbital cellulitis in children used to be um, H. flu was the bad actor, and now that all the kids are immunized, or most of them in the states are immunized, it's really rare to see an H. flu infection of any type, especially periorbital cellulitis or orbital cellulitis in a child. Yeah, I always find in kids it's always like I've never got a straight answer. I don't know if anyone has any good like tricks or anything, but like how to differentiate preceptal or, or orbital and, and uh, periorbital cellulitis in a kid, because a lot of times it will look the same. That it'll be swollen, be swollen shut. And the only way to really tell is like a CT scan. So most of the time, like from my experience, the kids just get admitted and they watch them and see how exactly. they do. But, Sometimes I mean, you have to do that in the borderline cases. Is there any, there's, is there any way of, other than imaging? Control? I, I think it's a lot more difficult in kids than adults yeah. to distinguish the difference. And sometimes it can be sort of a spectrum. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any, any tricks that would, I mean, basically you'd, what helps most is does it hurt when you move your eye, but if the kid's too young for that, I can't think of a good way to differentiate between it. Okay. Um, and then there's, uh, with orbital cellulitis, it can um, restrict the venous drainage behind the eye, and so you get chemosis. Chemosis is the heaping up of the bulbar conjunctiva that comes, climbs up over the limbus. It comes, climbs up onto the cornea. So this is chemosis and implies restriction of venous drainage behind the eye. There's a lot of other things that cause it too, but in, this, in the proper setting where you've got periorbital swelling and redness and fever and pain on oxytocular movement, then this would be part of the problem with orbital or post-septal cellulitis. So this kid doesn't look happy. This is probably an old slide, you know, kids before they were vaccinated. Although it can't, it, no. Um, and so uh, you were uh, talking about CT scans. Uh, certainly that can make the diagnosis. In this case, you can see not only is there stranding back here, but the eye is proptotic right, sticking out versus this one, so there's increased pressure behind here. All right, appropriate antibiotics, surgical drainage if they're not responding. And this can be, uh, that's right, it can be a extension of sinusitis um, from, you know, from the ethmoids or the maxillary. How much of an emergency is this? Like, clearly it's an issue, but like, I mean, how, how urgent is it that you call? Urgent, emergent. This is, this is, you're not going to see many of these. You get a kid with a fever and a swollen red eye, you're going to call ophthalmology and admit them. Or call pediatrics and have an ophthalmology call in. Right no, I think, they give, I think they give a trial of antibiotics, and then if they're not getting better, then they, they can do it. I'm sure there's ways to test the child's visual acuity if they don't want to, but um, it, it, our, our job is to sound the alarm and admit them and give them antibiotics. All right. Here's an orbital cellulitis, older, kind of skinny lady, probably not too well nourished. This kid has got periorbital cellulitis, is sitting up looking at you, looking okay. All right, let's see. So the preceptal periorbital, no limitation of eye movement, less serious, and a lot more common than orbital cellulitis. Preceptal cellulitis. Preceptal, preceptal, kind of hard to tell on this guy which one it would be. All right, um, then uh, this isn't actually an eye problem, but it does manifest on the face. Erysipelas um, is uh, group A strep, and patients can have even a quite high fever, 
and you know you can get a 60-year-old person with 104 fever and a big red blotch on their face, and you can act, it's actually very easy to treat. Um, the fever might suggest that you need to consider these guys septic and admit them, but if they have a de uh, sharply demarcated raised border of their red spot, then that's characteristic of erysipelas and could be treated with antibiotics in the ED and probably at home with close follow-up. So this is one example of erysipelas. And is that the only one I got? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I've, and I've seen a couple of these. It doesn't have to be on the face, but it typically is on the cheek. Um, I've seen a lot of pictures on the cheek, but don't happen to have one. Yeah, right. So it says it doesn't. It, the redness doesn't fade gradually. It really, you can actually palpate the edge. All right. Other lid and lash findings. So this is the basal cell, right? If you ask the patient how long has it been there, they'd say two days, but it's been there for a long time. And this is a squame. Yikes. And even oh, a sebaceous cyst, all right? So they can happen anywhere in the head and neck. That's what it looks like on the eye. We wouldn't do anything with that. Also, uh, also called an epidermal inclusion cyst, same thing as a sebaceous cyst. Oops. And melanomas can happen anywhere. So that's a melanoma of the eyelid. Ouch. <laughs> this is neurofibromatosis, von Recklinghausen's disease. I am not an animal, right? <laughs> All right. <coughs> Herpes can cause a blepharitis. All right, so these are herp herpetic little lesions there. Xanthelasma. Cholesterol. Although, although only half of the people, I looked this up once because we saw a guy with all kinds of xanthelasmas, and only half of the people with this actually have hypercholesterolemia. The other, it's idiopathic. They're not all, they don't all have a triglyceride of 1,000. I don't know if this is intentional or not, but. All right. Uh, I guess so. <laughs> All right, so don't worry about that. So, um, so panis is when the cornea gets infiltrated. So this kind of stuff here is supposedly a panis, not something that we have to worry a whole lot about. So let's skip that. Just extra blood vessels at the corneal margin. All right, conjunctivitis we know a lot about. Eyelids stuck together in the morning. Um, the cornea is clear. The, this con inflamed conjunctiva, the palpebral conjunctiva underneath the eyelids, and the bulbar conjunctiva overlying the sclera are inflamed, but it stops at the limbus, which is the border between the cornea and the white part of the eye of the sclera. So this is a guy whose eye is turned way up. This is pupil up here, um, and this is redness of his cornea. He's looking way up. Could be allergic. Um, uh, in the ophthalmology talk, they were, or maybe it was Dr. Hoon's talk, there was that cobblestoning appearance. Um, so um, that's characteristic of allergic conjunctivitis. The, pre the predominant symptom in allergic conjunctivitis is intense itching. I've had that. It, it's, not a, it's not subtle. It doesn't hurt. It just itches. It, hurt. It, it itches so much you will scratch your own eyes out and cause corneal abrasions. So I've had that. Um, so. It's a watery discharge. You might have chemosis. It could be that bad, mostly from rubbing, rubbing the eyes because it itches so much. And this has uh, chromalin sodium, the mast cell inhibitor, eye drops. That was a tremendous help to me you know, 20, 30 years ago when it first came out. I used to put chromalin sodium nose drops in my eyes because they didn't have an eye preparation in the U.S. It was only approved in Canada. So I used nasal chrome in my eyes, and it worked pretty well. And then the next thing is what's not on here is the systemic uh, antihistamines. So the Allegra and uh, Claritin's type stuff works wonders for allergic conjunctivitis. So if it itches, it's going to be allergic. Just be careful about giving particularly systemic antihistamines to elderly patients because there can be a lot of bad side effects. True. Okay. So, yeah. I think it was Zyrtec. Is that how you Zyrtec was not part of the anticholinergic. <coughs> Zyrtec, I think, is anticholinergic, but I take the other one, so I'm not sure. 
All right, so viral conjunctivitis. Most of this pink eye stuff is viral, um, and adenovirus is a frequent culprit. Um, but the characteristic in emergency medicine is to treat eye discharges with antibiotic drops. Um, unfortunately, getting antibiotic drops into some people is a pain in the butt, and especially in children. And so I recall a child, a nine-month-old I had uh, a few weeks ago, visiting from out of town who had, you know, like two hours of pink eye and a little bit of crusties. And I just told the mom, I don't think it's worth using antibiotics on this. <coughs> you you, you want to call your pediatrician when you get home, you certainly can, but this is most certainly going to be viral, and it's going to be fine not to treat it. There's so. a really easy way to get eye drops in kids. Yeah, you can have them close their eyes and put the, put yeah, the drop on the interior in the inner canthus, and then they'll open their eye. Yeah, you don't have to pry their eye open and drop it in. That's really hard. But even to, but even to do that, it's supposed to be every three to four hours, and you're going to... I just don't think it's worth it. I mean, yes, the, the convention in emergency medicine is to treat eye goop with antibiotics, but I think it's almost always viral. Um, conjunctivitis, bilateral, and this, he must have been with Movember too, right? It's like he went into December a little bit. Yeah. So the bulbar conjunctiva here is uh, inflamed in red. This is conjunctivitis as well. Both the palpebral conjunctiva and the bulbar conjunctiva are red. I think this is a little bit of discharge. I mean, the more, the more purulent, purulent it gets, the more likely I am, I suppose, to give some antibiotics. But more conjunctivitis. <coughs> All right, bacteria is supposed to be yellow discharge, lids stuck together in the morning. Uh, gonococcus you'll get from history. Um, as Dr. Hoon said, polytrim is a good antibiotic to use. It doesn't have the neomycin in it that people are allergic to. Supposedly 10 or 15% of people are allergic to neomycin, so we're not supposed to use um, neosporin or anything with neo in it. So polytrim is trimethoprim and polymyxin covers the usual um, pathogens for conjunctivitis if it's bacterial. Um, this uh, Talk said to avoid the, the fluoroquinolones because there's emerging resistance. Um, they're also a lot more expensive, so the polytrim is the cheapest one. There's a slide later that says that it costs about 14 bucks a bottle, so the polytrim is the least expensive of the common antibiotic drops. All right, and if the patient has gonococcal conjunctivitis, then treat like an STD. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right, so here's some more vaccial conjunctivitis pictures. This is the gonococcal in the baby. So again, what Dr. Koenig said is the, you, you wipe it away and there's more pus. You wipe it away, there's more pus. It doesn't go away. This is also supposed to be gonococcal and this one also. So pus pouring out of the eye, think gonococcus. All right, um, so cheap antibiotics are indicated if there's no contact lenses. Um, the fluoroquinolones are more expensive. The aminoglycosides are cheap, but they supposedly inhibit corneal healing. And the ophthalmologists say we shouldn't use aminoglycoside drops. So I've been told the opposite by <laughs> the ophthalmology residents a bunch of times. Okay. To use... use Because it's cheap and it covers everything. I think so far, it's cheap and they compare to like fourth generation of the quinolones. Yeah. So, but it's still quite expensive compared to... That's pretty cheap. Yeah, I mean, there's, there, there's a slide in here with some costs on it a little bit, little bit later, so we may answer the question. Um, just anemia, look at the conjunctiva for that. Subconjunctival hemorrhage, I apparently have one right now. I didn't notice that I had one, but I've got <laughs> one on my left. Uh, Pam, Pam, Pam yesterday, yesterday says, what happened to your eye? I go, what, what happened to my eye? <laughs> so I got one. So it's, it's innocuous, it comes, it just happens. Um, if you vomit a lot, you can get subconjunctival hemorrhage. If you rub your eyes a lot, you can get it, um, but it goes away. But it is relatively common to see patients coming to the emergency department because it's very scary looking, particularly if they're large. So our main job is reassurance right. and that it's going to last for several weeks. Yeah, and there's no effect on vision and it's completely painless. So that's what. And you don't have to check. You don't have to check uh, blood pressures, and you know, you're like, 
other than the triage blood pressure. You don't have to check coags and all that stuff or platelet counts. It's just diagnosis at a glance. You're going to be fine. Go home. Do warn them that it's going to take them, um, I don't know, two, three weeks for it to completely resolve like any other bruise is going to go from red to green to yellow and finally it'll fade. So you got to you know, give them a couple weeks of guidance that it's going to be there and then fade. Here's a bad one. But it doesn't matter how big it is. It's still fine. I mean, as long, I mean, you know, if somebody had trauma to their eye and had this, then I would be worried. But there's gonna, not going to be any history of trauma. Right. And maybe even a globe perforation. But those are going to be pretty obvious. These people are going to say, I'm here because my eye, my eye is red. How's your vision? Fine. Does it hurt in your eye? No. It's just, why is my eye red? That's the only complaint. Here's another one. All right. And then uh, chemosis is what we've talked about with the heaping up of the conjunctiva over the, over the margin of the cornea where it joins the sclera. All right? And this is not a good one. There's a good one. Okay, so that's chemosis. So here the conjunctiva is swollen all the way around, but it's so swollen inferiorly that it's actually climbing up onto the cornea, chemosis. All right, now, if there's, some, there's something called hemorrhagic chemosis, if there's bleeding into it, then that's a ruptured globe until proven otherwise. So you sort of draw a distinction between, yeah, this is just red and inflamed versus actual hematoma. So hemorrhagic chemosis, I don't know if I've got a picture of that here. Maybe I do later. But um, hemorrhagic chemosis is a ruptured globe until you show that it's not, whereas this is um, sort of a really exaggerated conjunctivitis. Here's another one. All right, so we, we were talking about uveitis and the ciliary flush. So let's see here. The ciliary flush is this extra, or limbal flush is this extra redness at the, at the margin here, indicating uveitis. And this is what we saw earlier with the iris actually adherent to the cornea posteriorly. With the posterior synechii, that's a characteristic of uveitis. And then the ciliary flush is the exaggerated redness right at the limbus. Right. All right, a couple other things that we should recognize. Pterygium. So this is a growth of ocular tissue over the cornea. So what kind of patients get this? Right, so it's UV keratitis and UV exposure, so it's the farm workers who commonly get this, people who are out in the sun all the time. So it's called a pterygium when it climbs over the limbus onto the cornea. What's it called when it doesn't? It's got a different name. Close. Pingueculi. A pinguecula doesn't climb onto the cornea and a pterygium does. The patients won't <laughs> complain of the, of the pingueculae because it doesn't impede their vision, it doesn't bother them. But when they get a pterygium, when it climbs onto the cornea, then it may affect the vision and people notice it more. So a pinguecula is something that we notice when we examine a patient, it's inconsequential. The pterygium is something the patient comes in and complains about. Nothing for us to do about it. If it's really bad, the ophthalmologist can remove it. What time are we here? Okay. All right, here's a really bad uh, pterygium as well, right? This, is, this one would need referral to an ophthalmologist to remove. Certainly if it goes into the visual axis, that, that's the worst part of it. And here's one kind of hard to see on this one. All right. Eey. So there's precancerous lesions too. He, he threw in some shocking eye stuff here. And then people apparently do conjunctival jewelry. Anybody actually know somebody who does this? No. No, it's real. They were, I don't know how that, I don't know how it adheres, but but they've done it. John, does you guys know about that, right? Remind me again the textbook numbers of Billy Rubens. That gets that gets your eyes red. It's like eyes first and skin. I don't know. Okay. All right. I've missed a lot of threes. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I guess it's a little red, a little yellow. Um, and then there's muddy sclera. So this is just sort of a brownish discoloration that's not um, jaundice. 
generally in older folks with dark skin. Then this is apparently the osteogenesis imperfecta blue sclera. I guess it looks blue. More so on the screen than on the down here. All right, um, scleritis and uveitis, uh, severe boring eye pain, decreased vision, light sensitivity, and associated with the autoimmune diseases we talked about. So this, this is scleritis. So if somebody just had conjunctivitis, they could have an eye this red, but they wouldn't have any photophobia and they wouldn't have any um, pain. Right? They might have irritation, itching type stuff, but they wouldn't have pain. So this person is going to come in and say, my eye hurts a lot, and his vision is going to be decreased. So even though the picture of the redness could be confusing, the patient's presentation with pain and, and decreased vision is going to be different than conjunctivitis. That's why... So this is external sclerosis. Are they going to have, they're not going to have photophobia then because they don't have internal iris and... They do have they should have photophobia with this. I mean, you're, you're going to ask me some questions, and I freely admit that I'm not an expert in differentiating between it. I know what conjunctivitis is. I know that they don't have pain. They don't have pain on external movement. They don't have... Um, there's, yeah, there's lots of those things, but I don't know that we can make that differentiation. I think it's more important, because to, to me, it's a red eye. And where the redness is, is kind of hard to differentiate. It's more important to know, is the vision normal? Is there photophobia? Um, is there pain on ocular movement? Is there pain at all? All right, and certainly with those uh, three or four warning flags, then you would call and consult. The, the conjunctivitis is going to be none of those. All right, so it's not so much the, the picture and the, uh, um, the redness and where it is, because that's hard to discriminate. I've seen a lot of pictures of conjunctivitis and a lot of people pictures of scleritis and episcleritis and uveitis, and the red eye looks pretty much the same to me. I'm not sophisticated enough to, to tell. Yes? Did you say the sclera was avascular when we were talking about injected sclera, and now it's all red? Yeah. So I can't reconcile that. Okay. <laughs> we should look it up and see what, what, what causes the redness in scleritis. Okay. All right. This is also scleritis. Again, it's, to me, it's just you know a red eye, and how would you <coughs> differentiate from conjunctivitis? I mean, ophthalmologists obviously do. All right, episcleritis is even more confusing, and I'm not going to spend time trying to differentiate because they all look the same to me. All right, so we don't need. All right, uh, cornea. So, uh, call the ophthalmologist and and. So we give we give steroids in conjunction with the ophthalmologist. Either they see them, or they tell us, or we describe it, and they tell us to start it over the phone, and they see them tomorrow. <laughs> right. So we're going to get get to the corneal staining in a little bit. All right. So old folks have this sort of gray white ring, this thing called arcosinosis. It's, it's not pathologic, it's just a finding. Here's another one sort so of a... Is that, I thought, is that associated with high cholesterol, high cholesterol too? Or or is that, that's what I were learning. Uh, okay. Arcosinellus, what I read about today, just said that it was with old folks and it was in, inconsequential. No, I think there's a pre-senile form. Pre-senile? Okay. <laughs> All right, this is the Kaiser Fleischer ring with the carpet, copper depositions. Um, the UV keratitis, this happens in the patients who are snowblind. They, they go skiing and they get UV exposure to their corneas, both from the sun and, and, the, and the reflection off the snow. And they come in with snow blindness. Also in welders who don't wear their goggles, they get the UV keratitis. Um, it's uh, very painful. It's like having your whole cornea abraded, and it's bilateral and very painful and can even cause, um, what's that called, uh, ciliary body spasm and need a cycloplegic. So <clears throat> the patient has a dramatic foreign body sensation. Every time they blink, it hurts, but that goes away completely with the propericane. So you put the propericane in, and they say, oh, thank you, it's gone. Then they want to take the bottle home with them, um, and the, and the, the uh, anesthetic's only going to last 15 or 20 minutes. They can't take it home with them because if you keep putting it in, then it inhibits the 
re-epithelialization of the cornea. So you can't let them steal the bottle, even though they want to. So this is somebody with uh, ultraviolet keratitis. And this is somebody who, this is on a slit lamp exam with fluor, I think with fluorescein, but anyway, there's all these little punctate um, epithelial defects in the cornea. All, these are a whole bunch of little teeny corneal abrasions. That's why it hurts so much. So foreign body sensation, photophobia, um, decreased visual acuity. Um, the, if, if they have, all right, so now we've switched from UV keratitis to corneal abrasion. I would take exception with this decreased visual acuity in that you only get a decreased visual acuity with a corneal abrasion if the corneal abrasion is in the visual axis. So if it's right in the middle, yeah, you're going to be looking through a defect and you're going to have some decreased vision. If it's off to the side, it doesn't affect your visual acuity. You get photophobia because you get um, um, ciliary body spasm. That's actually uncommon. Most corneal abrasions don't get that. And so photo photophobia is not all that common with corneal abrasions. Because I had allergic eyes my whole life, I used to rub my eyes like crazy. Before the antihistamines, I had many corneal abrasions. And only three times out of all the corneal abrasions I gave myself did I ever have ciliary, ciliary body spasm. <coughs> and that's completely different. Of, it's a boring pain behind the eye that's different than the foreign body sensation that you have on the cornea. So if somebody has... Uh, ciliary body spasm from their corneal abrasion, number one, it's rare, and number two, you'll know it because you put the preparacane in and they'll still have the same terrible, boring pain behind the eye. Whereas if it's just the corneal abrasion alone, then the pain goes away completely. All right, and you want to examine for a foreign body, so what's wrong with this picture? Okay, so we're seeing fluorescein uptake, right? And what about the pattern of the fluorescein uptake? Mm, this is actually isn't the dendritic one. Okay. Okay, and so what are they blinking? Or a foreign body under their lid. All right, so whenever you see vertically oriented or close to vertically oriented serial corneal abrasions, that implies there's something under the lid. And so we, Dr. Hoon talked about everting the lid, and that's something we should always document with a corneal abrasion that we looked under and didn't find one. So I think we got a couple of pictures in that. So here's the uh, Proparacane eye drops. Authentic is a brand name. Contrary, it's like 0.5% instead of 1%. Um, but basically, that'll give you 15 or, 15, 15 or 20 minutes worth of anesthetic. And tell the patient it's going to burn for a few seconds first. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, so let's see. Tetracane, we basically don't use. There are other different anesthetics you could use, but this is what we've been using here for many years. All right, let's see. Uh, we expect a conjunctival injection. Visual acuity should be normal. Um, when you use the fluorescein stain and put the woods lamp or the cobalt blue on it, you get uptake. So this, this, by the way, if anybody wonders, this is the reflection of the camera, the light or the flash in the camera or the slit lamp. That's not a lesion. This is the lesion here. All right, and this is another reflection, I think. But this is sort of a greenish uptake of fluorescein on the cornea. When it's that large, you can often see without even Right, so I think a little bit later, there's a couple where you can use the slit lamp and actually see it, or even see it with the naked eye. So here, again, this is just a reflection, but the corneal abrasion is this thing here. And it's green with from the uh, fluorescein. Here's a big one, a little pixelated out, but... So this might affect the visual acuity because it's getting close to the visual axis. These are one of the most painful conditions we see. This is from a fingernail, so this is visible with the naked eye. So this whole piece of the cornea is removed <coughs> from a fingernail scratch of some sort. So here's the what they call the poor man's slit lamp. It's not showing very well, but you can sort of see a little divot in the cornea even without puncturing the cornea, you can actually see a piece that's a little missing. I don't know that it doesn't project very well. But if you shine your slit across the cornea, even before you fluorescein stain them, sometimes you can see the defect. All right, tetanus in the eye. Um, it's really kind of...
it happened. Yeah, we did for a point in, at a point in time, but not that more. All right, so the whole business with corneal abrasions and tetanus is pretty ridiculous. It's based on um, 38 cases, most of them with a perforated globe, but like everything else in medicine, we extrapolate terrible stuff to minor versions of the same stuff, and we give <laughs> tetanus shocks to people with corneal abrasions. All right, so if the patient does not get complete relief with the uh, Proparacaine topical, an topical anesthetic, then with, and you've diagnosed a corneal abrasion, that's when you think you have ciliary, ciliary body spasm, which is like getting a Charlie horse in your eye, right? It's a, just a spasm of the muscle like a cramp. And the cycloplegic, like cyclogel or mydriacil, will relieve that. So we need to do this very rarely. Um, but if they have pain after the pro Proparacaine, you can use the cycloplegic. The eye patches don't uh, work and aren't necessary. There's no change in the outcome. Um, let's see. I won't worry about that. Foreign bodies. So a few uh, a few more uh, pictures before we end. So. The, we, we didn't emphasize yet the idea of hammering or grinding as the risk factor for um, corneal foreign bodies or intraocular foreign bodies. So if, anybody, so if anybody gives a history of grinding metal or hammering metal on metal and says something flew in my eye, that's an intraocular foreign body until you prove that it isn't. So a plain old x-ray, don't need a CT scan, plain old x-ray is enough to say there's no intraorbital foreign body. But if somebody's like bang, 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 and then ow, and they come in, even if their eye looks pretty good, get an orbit x-ray, it's cheap, and it excludes the metal foreign body. The foreign body certainly could lodge on the cornea, and that might, you might not need to get it if you can actually see the thing. But if you don't see much, then you should get the, uh, get the orbit x-ray. Um, Dr. Rudkin was mentioning that even if we pick these out or pick these off, that can leave a rust ring, the, the corneal foreign body Basically, it leaves a little rust around it after, I don't know, 6 or 12 hours or so. And most emergency physicians don't grind out that little rust ring. Even if we get the foreign body itself out, we still have to send the patient to the ophthalmologist to get the residual rust from around it. Here's another one. Um, so what would be the test? Here's another one. This is, like, I think this is the rust ring, yeah, so after it's removed. So you need to worry about having punctured the anterior chamber. So whose test is it to look at? Um, to see if there's streaming of the aqueous humor down the cornea, Seidel's test. So you don't want to, so you do a Seidel's, well, you stain the cornea and then you look at the cornea very closely with the slit lamp. And if you see a ribbon of fluorescein going down the cornea, then that's aqueous humor leaking out through the cornea and that's a perforated cornea that you have to see the ophthalmologist right now. All right, so after, if you take it off, do a Seidel's sign and look closely to make sure you haven't perforated the cornea. What happens if the rust doesn't ever get out? Um, I don't know. I don't know. They just remove it routinely. What's what happens if the rust, uh, if the, uh, they don't go to the ophthalmologist and take the rust out? Okay. So this is the foreign body under the lid. And this is the same magnified picture with the linear streaks. Presume there's a foreign body under the lid and evert it. Here's another foreign body under the lid. And uh, antibiotic eye drops are, this is the, yeah, the tobramycin is like eight bucks. But the, what's the other one? Yeah. The uh, polymyxin is 14. So I guess the Tobrex is even cheaper. This is 2005 numbers, so. There's a gent, gent ointment in a... No? no. no? Alright, we'll use cheap stuff. I'm running out of time here, so don't worry about this. Doesn't matter which antibiotic you use, doesn't change anything. Um, avoid neosporin because that causes the neomycin allergy. The NSAID eye drops are terribly expensive and we don't need them. Wow. $37,000 a gallon, they're so expensive. <laughs> 
Um, there's a table of the drugs we use to dilate the pupil. We don't do that very often. The same ones that dilate the pupil also paralyze the ciliary body and relieve spasm. So the mydriacil is the shortest. Actually, both of these are short-acting mydriacil duration. So this is one. The mydriacil is the shortest-acting one. If you use homatropine or atropine, their pupil is dilated forever. So mydriacil is the one that we're supposed to use. Couple more pictures and we'll be done. Pseudomonas keratitis, corneal ulcer. Anything you can, if you can see an opacity on the cornea with your naked eye, that's an ulcer. If you can only see it with the fluorescein stain, that's an abrasion. All right. So anything you can see on the cornea yourself is an ulcer, bad ulcer. They can perforate in 24 hours. That's why we have to consult right away. Uh, shingles. That's the herpes zoster. Yikes! 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 This is a couple of pictures of the dendrites. So now we're getting the dendrites. So there's one, there's the best dendrite picture I've seen, or amoeboid. So these are herpes simplex, sorry, herpes zoster of the eye. All right, and that's an immediate consult. Another dendrite, right? That's with fluorescein, yes. This one's green with fluorescein. So these are corneal defects, so they will um, take up fluorescein. Okay, so I'm over time, so I'll quit. Great, thanks. Pictures, yes, the pictures. Are